we understood coming into 2021, it was going to be a recovery year. It was going to be impossible to hit 2019 levels. Now as we enter 2022, the big question mark, I think in a lot of minds is, what's the time frame for recovery? Do you expect us to hit those 2019 admission levels? This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, and this week I am speaking to Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the Chief Analyst at Box Office Pro. Soon we're also going to speak to Cheryl Wunnell, the CEO of the Global Cinema Advertising Association. But before that, we are looking forward to the next couple of weeks, in particular because we are about to see the release of Spider-Man No Way Home, the third solo Spider-Man movie from Sony and Marvel Studios starring Tom Holland as Spider-Man, likely to be one of the biggest releases of the year. It's a theatrical exclusive. uh, And so we're going to take a look at what to expect there, as well as uh, look at a couple of other big and specialty titles that have come out recently or are on their way to theaters. So Daniel and Sean, let's talk about Spider-Man. In my book, for my money's worth, this is the most prolific, probably the most important blockbuster movie we've seen since Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, pre-pandemic. Uh, this is that level of a movie. And I think we've kind of seen all of the all of the hype, all of the anticipation really bear out over the last couple of weeks. We've talked about it for almost a year since the movie was officially titled and announced, and we had an, a, an idea of what it was going to be about. But ever since the trailers have released and pre-sales began around the Thanksgiving holiday, it's it's just kicked up another notch every time. There's really not been any slowdown. So this is this is exactly what every single one of us from a business industry perspective have been really waiting for since the pandemic began. And I think that, uh, you know, as, as we record this, uh, the review embargo has just broken for Spider-Man No Way Home with 52 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It has 100% tomato meter reading on Rotten Tomatoes. The tomato meter is uh, is, you know, for anyone who's looked critically at it, is always a little bit interesting uh, to really break down. But that 100% score, I think, reflects a little bit of what Sean is saying, which is excitement for the movie and maybe uh, an anticipation of something that feels a little bit like things are really back and kicking in. And maybe it's also a really good movie. Both of those things would be great for us. And you know what? I have to tell you guys, I went to the media screening for this movie on Monday night here in New York City. It felt like I was going to opening night. There was applause. There was cheering from a lot of working press that were seeing this for the first time. I really felt an excitement uh, out of a press screening that I usually don't feel. After having seen the film, I'm very excited to see how audiences react to this. I think it's going to be a very audience-friendly film. And I say that both for the fans and for people like myself that haven't seen all these Marvel TV shows don't really know what some of the more obscure superheroes are. Extremely accessible and rewarding as a movie. Uh, I really do expect this to, to do well and have legs based on that early reaction. I think that's an important point that you bring up for, you know, not just attracting fans, but this is this is Spider-Man. I mean, this is kind of one of those franchises like Star Wars that when the right version of that brand comes out, you don't feel like you have to have seen everything that's come before it to, to want to see it. It's just... It's that kind of iconic character. And, you know, we're really kind of at the point where as much as we've talked about how, how much, especially older audiences are cautious to go back to theaters and public spaces in general, 
the other side of that is that there's this kind of repressed demand to go back out and see a big movie like this that everyone is talking about and everyone will be talking about over the holidays. I think that's kind of fueling some of this, this, you know, kind of peripheral anticipation outside of the, the diehard fans. And Russ, this is a franchise that since you've been covering this industry has been one of the major beacons for Sony in terms of IP. For a while, it looked like the franchise had completely lost its way. We had a run since the third Raimi film, probably through the two Mark Webb movies. It just didn't work uh, about five to ten years ago, including that disastrous Julie Tamer musical here in New York <laughs> that just could not uh, have anything going for it. For a while, this franchise was really, really struggling. What's been the evolution of Spider-Man at the movies for a studio like Sony? I think the evolution of Spider-Man at the movies is actually the evolution of the movies over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, you go back to James Cameron spending years trying to make his version of a Spider-Man movie. Never happened. Uh, You know, you get to Sam Raimi doing it, and Sam Raimi making Spider-Man really helps. You know, it's one of the two movies, along with Brian Singer's first X-Men movie, that really kicks off everything that we see in superhero movies now, and by extension, a lot of what we see in big-budget studio filmmaking overall. You know, the evolution of Spider-Man at the movies is the full integration of computer-generated effects into scenes in ways that are often invisible. You know, it's bringing intellectual properties and stories to the big screen in ways that I think a lot of producers going back years thought could never be done. It's a process of familiarizing the audience with what a superhero movie is and what to expect from it, all of which leads to the point where now we've got this thing where, you know, you have Spider-Man hopping uh, through a multiverse. You have villains from previous disassociated incarnations of the franchise cropping up. You know, you've got the Green Goblin from the Sam Raimi movies, Dr. Octopus from the Sam Raimi movies, Electro, played by Jamie Foxx, from those Mark Webb movies that you mentioned, which failed. Those characters are all in this movie and probably more that I I don't know about because I haven't seen it yet. I don't want to know. Don't tell me, please. But it's like, that's kind of remarkable that the biggest movie of the year is this strange, like, meta- take on the Spider-Man movie series as a whole, like you step back and look at it critically, that's kind of remarkable, you know? And it speaks to the market power and the interest of Spider-Man. You know, a character who is, I think, fundamentally good-natured and optimistic, which stands in direct opposition to some of the assumptions about superhero movies. It's very easy to like Spider-Man. It's very easy to like Spider-Man movies, even when they're not great. Those villains that you mentioned, uh, Russ, the performances were great. Jamie Foxx actually is still in his Mike Tyson shape. Jamie Foxx, <laughs> as some of you may know, is uh, playing Mike Tyson uh, in an upcoming uh, series. He just kept the haircut. He kept the look. He's in heavyweight fitness for this role. Uh, it's fantastic. Willem Dafoe delivers a great performance. And Alfred Molina is as much of a guarantee as you could ask for at the movies. Uh, again, uh, I'm just really taken aback by how well this worked with an audience. Now let's talk numbers, Sean. What can we expect from this title on its opening weekend here in North America? A lot of money. And that's it. (laughs) That's going to be the official prediction. 
No, I, you know, we've, we've had our range out there of about 190 to 250, which seems like a big range, but you know, in, in reality, especially with what we have to look at right now, that's, that's where this thing is trending. Now, I think that's, I think the gap is closing a little bit, but we also just really have no metri- metrics to compare to because nothing this size of a movie has opened in two years. And I think consumer habits, especially with pre-sales have probably evolved a little bit since then. We've seen that play out already with a few other movies. So I think if I were betting, I would say the odds of this hitting 200 million are far, far more likely than not hitting it. But considering we haven't even had a $100 million opener, it's really kind of splitting hairs at this point. It's, it's going to be successful no matter what. It's just a matter of how big it's going to be. But I really do like the odds of it, of it hitting that 200 million mark. And, and, you know, potentially even higher. I I think for me, The Force Awakens is probably a little bit out of reach for the December record, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out entirely. This is super tangential, but it's a point that's consistently of interest to me. Marvel Studios, in particular, is more and more filmmaker driven and filmmaker focused as it goes forward. In that, the studio is very much interested in promoting who is making these movies, what that person's personality is, what their previous films have been like, the whole sort of thing. And it's kind of remarkable to me that. Spider-Man is being directed now by a guy who is clearly very good at his job and who I think a lot of people probably couldn't even name. You know, it's <laughs> really interesting to me that amid the big Marvel Studios push to be very filmmaker forward that John Watts, a guy who did one movie, at, who, which was at Sundance, which I liked that movie at Sundance. It's really fun. Um, but he's turned into this kind of interesting filmmaker in that he's working purely in this studio system in a way that is uncommon right now. And he's doing so semi-anonymously in that he's not a huge part of the promotion. His name is not a huge part of the promotion for these movies. And yet they clearly work and he's clearly doing a terrific job steering the ship. And that just stands out as different from everything else that's happening in the world of superhero movies right now. And so by virtue of being different, it's, I think, worthy of note from my perspective. Absolutely. I mean, John Watts revived this franchise. We mentioned it briefly. This was an IP that simply was not working. It wasn't working uh, on television. There were a couple of animated series that really didn't pan out in the interim. It wasn't working either with Raimi or with Webb. And it really took John Watts to come in and completely take a spin on this to the point where we're talking about Spider-Man No Way Home, the third entry in this franchise, as the most important movie as part of this pandemic recovery for the entire industry. Guys, it's not that long ago when The Amazing Spider-Man 2 opened and we were all completely finished with this uh, franchise and superhero. Sean, having this at the front of your mind, looking at this momentum that the Spider-Man franchise has built, not only for Marvel, but for Sony especially, What does this mean for new titles like Morbius or like some Venom sequels that we may see from the studio? I think there'll be some sort of spillover effect. We've already seen that play out with Venom. Morbius, probably we'll see a little bit more of that, having Jared Leto in the lead, another familiar name and face similar to Tom Hardy with Venom. But I think the key component to what's made John Watts be able to do what he's done with Sony is the fact that Kevin Feige and Marvel have overseen these Spider-Man films. I, I wonder how much that will apply to any stories that begin to cross over with other characters. Not to say that other people can't be successful, that's not what I mean, but I think I think having that vision and that coherence has really played a part in this trilogy. 
Now, going forward, obviously, Sony wants to have its own side-slash-sub-franchise, maybe even its own franchise. I don't know how this Spider-Man movie ends. Maybe this is the last time we see Tom Holland in the MCU for a while. Who knows? We just know we're getting more of him as Spider-Man. But to me, this this really kind of spells the beginning of a new era of, of superhero franchises in that we can have the multiverse and we can have actors come back, but not necessarily tie into stories they've been involved with before. And it's, it's going to get very complicated. And the real challenge is going to be making audiences understand what's set apart and what's tied together in a way that's not confusing. That leads us into the next movie. And yes, we have more movies to talk about this weekend as we cross over to movies that can appeal both to a specialized and mainstream audience. And who better to talk about in this regard than Guillermo del Toro's newest film, Nightmare Alley, a remake of a very, can we call it iconic? Let's call it underappreciated, underknown. How would you describe the original Nightmare Alley, Russ? I mean, it's it's a movie that has a great reputation amongst uh, the TCM crowd, uh, amongst, <laughs> uh, you know, people who are familiar with and interested in classical Hollywood cinema. It's a wonderful movie. It's a hell of a downer, as I understand uh, Del Toro's new one, new version is as well. Still a downer. Still a downer. Polar yeah. opposite <laughs> to a Spider-Man movie, probably. But very fun. I can tell you, well, it's, uh, well, as fun as a modern take on a film noir classic can be. I thought this movie worked in, in many ways. Uh, another great performance uh, from Willem Dafoe here in a supporting role, not to mention lead Bradley Cooper also uh, delivering in this film. Interesting title. Sean, is this movie just going to get completely overshadowed by Sony's Spider-Man opening weekend? I mean, what sense does it make having a Guillermo del Toro film that can cross over to a wider audience open on the same weekend as the Spider-Man cross-quadrant monster? I think the only bit of sense that makes to me is that there had been some hope of an award season run, and maybe that can kind of still happen to some extent, but this is absolutely going to be overshadowed. This is one of several movies opening over the next two weeks that will be really fighting for screens against Spider-Man and a couple of other movies. And... This is also another title from Searchlight Pictures, which Disney is distributing. And that tandem hasn't really worked out so well so far during the pandemic outside of Free Guy, whether it was Searchlight or, or 20th Century itself, any Fox titles, essentially. So it's really it's a head scratcher. I'll be honest. And maybe maybe they realized there wasn't going to be a significant award season run in, in their assessment. And that's why they're just putting this out now at a time of year when it kind of makes sense. But I also think why not release this maybe closer to Halloween a lot of questions. I haven't seen the movie though, so I'm kind of coming at this just from an, an outsider's perspective of of how I'm seeing the marketing for this, looking at the cast, looking at, at the director and the time of year, and and a lot of questionable, I think, strategies going on right now. If you open this in, like you say, in October, or you open it in February, March, it's maybe a different scenario. You open it against Spider Man at the end of the year when it's been another hard year and people just want to, I think, actually have a good time for a little while. I think that everything about the release plan for this movie has increased this already steep grade of its uphill climb, you know? And it's an unquestionably adult skewing title. Having seen the movie, it's dark, it's gritty. Like you mentioned, it's polar opposite from that cross quadrant, very playful appeal of this Spider-Man movie opening in theaters. Having said all this, 
Sean, what are your expectations for opening weekend for something like Nightmare Alley? I think under the circumstances, you know, we're, we're definitely looking at under five million. The only way I think it can get above that mark is because of Del Toro's name and, and the cast to some extent. But that would even without Spider-Man, maybe that could happen. I just have a hard time seeing that really reach much higher than the three to five million range right now. Maybe with a few adjustments, we're also waiting to get a, a final theater count from Disney later this week. So, you know, if it's not as wide as, as, as expected, we can definitely lower that range a little bit more. And that's coming off another bad performance from a Disney and 20th Century Studios title, West Side Story. Guys, this opened to 10.5 million from 2,820 screens. Even the screen count for this movie was low. What went wrong here? Well, who wants to go first? <laughs> <laughs> look, I think for starters, let's let's look at the audience. Who is the audience? <laughs> that's the that's the number one question here. And the audience was a segment of the population that has very clearly been the most reticent to go back to a movie theater this year. Women over thirty five to forty. That is West Side Story's bread and butter. It's it's honestly the bread and butter of of a great number of musicals. And the hope had been that maybe Steven Spielberg's name could elevate this a little bit more into the mainstream audience. Maybe that still happens over the holidays. But in terms of opening weekend, especially one week before Spider-Man, when any potential young audience they might have attracted with this movie has already committed their next movie-going experience to being the Marvel event movie of the holiday season. So West Side Story just was not a priority for anyone who's already bought Spider-Man tickets or really anyone under a certain age, I think. I think West Side Story is really fighting a battle of relevance. You know, it's a powerful story. It's it's a you know it's a story that obviously continues to have appeal for a lot of audiences, but I think that there was a lot of work to do in reminding people of that and in maybe convincing those who are unfamiliar with it that yeah, there, this property has been around for a long time for a reason, and Disney and 20th Century Studios didn't manage the trick. And Spielberg wasn't enough to do it. And I think it's really as simple as that. And it comes down to, you know, kind of even what dovetailing with what Sean is saying, that the core audience for that movie wasn't activated and and either didn't know the movie existed or didn't care or wasn't ready to go to the theater, any number of things. But I, I do think that fundamentally West Side Story was always going to be a difficult sell to modern audiences. West Side Story is a musical that has also been put back on stage on Broadway several times over the last decade. And even there hasn't had extended runs on stage in New York City. So it was always going to be a big risk, I think, going back to an iconic classic film like this in a way that we just saw really didn't work at the box office especially being released during the pandemic, just unfortunate all around. This is also another one of those movies that we will look at down the road and wonder if this was a turning point for that older audience. Before the pandemic, it was easier to expect those legs to show up. It's more of a question now. We have to ask ourselves, are people just going to wait and watch this at home? Is that is maybe 10 to 15% of that audience never going back? It's hard to say. Definitely a concern as we look forward to 2022 at these longstanding effects of this uh, pause, of this intermission in moviegoing from older audiences. Looking over the rest of the box office here, we had some positive performances from specialty films under a platform release, namely P.T. Anderson's Licorice Pizza from United Artists. 
holding on fairly well from those four 70 millimeter screens. It has $172,000 in its third weekend, $1.1 million in its early theatrical run. Sean Baker's Red Rocket from A24 opening to $96,000 from six screens in its platform debut here in North America. Both these titles performing very well in New York and L.A. So let's move forward real fast before our interview with uh, Cheryl Winnell from the Global Cinema Advertising Association to some of the movies that we can look forward to in Q1 of 2022, or at least uh, some of those movies that already have trailers out there that are on our box office company's box office trailer network that you can find on YouTube. Russ, you're deeply involved in this uh, part of our business. What are the trailers that you're seeing getting a lot of traction online from viewers? Some of them are the ones that you would expect. Spider-Man, The Batman, which opens in March, titles like that. Two recent examples are Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which uh, a trailer which arrived uh, a few days ago during the uh, 2021 Video Game Awards. And that's kind of an interesting title because the original Sonic the Hedgehog Paramount title uh, received a lot of fan backlash after the initial trailer release because uh, fans of this video game character hated the way the character looked in the movie. The studio and the filmmakers responded. They said, you know what? You're right. We blew it. They went back and redid the character, which is virtually unheard of. And then that movie became a success. It was a pre-pandemic release, came out in February of 2020. So the movie hit just before the pandemic did. And now, a year and a half later, we're seeing the trailer for the sequel, which means the sequel was entirely turned around during the pandemic, which is interesting. You know, kind of a strange little narrative for Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And in this trailer, you see extended catering to the video game fan base, where you've got uh, characters like Tails and Knuckles, who are these other video game characters, being rendered very much in a form that one would expect to see if you're a fan of the games or a fan of the animation that was produced based on the games, etc. You've got Idris Elba voicing Knuckles, which I think created a, a little bit of meme traction uh, on Twitter and other places. So yeah, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 performing quite well. And then also, uh, just arriving earlier this week, was the first trailer for Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which is the third Fantastic Beasts movie in which Johnny Depp is replaced as Grindelwald by Mads Mikkelsen. Johnny Depp had replaced Colin Farrell as Grindelwald, so it's an interesting set of succession there in this movie series. But, you know, I think there's a lot of reason to wonder how the third Fantastic Beasts movie is going to play. Critically, this series has not captured people in the way that the Harry Potter movies have. But uh, from a box office perspective, perhaps Sean could talk a little bit more. Uh, But the fan interest, specifically in this one, is extremely large. And so I'm curious to see how the movie will perform when it finally hits screens uh, later in 2022. It's definitely a series that hasn't gone the way I think Warner Brothers had hoped. We we saw diminishing returns with the last film. The initial one actually had really good staying power at the box office, and it was in a pretty competitive market back in 2016 against Doctor Strange and Rogue One. And that first Fantastic Beasts movie still still drew, I, I would say, the core Harry Potter audience, maybe not the more casual ones. And then we really saw that play out with the sequel, which was really fan-driven. I, I kind of expect that to be the case again with this next movie, especially opening, I believe, one week after Sonic uh, is where it's out on the schedule. So it will really hinge on needing to bring back some of that more casual Harry Potter audience. 
And let's touch on the other film that Russ had mentioned here, Sonic 2. Video game movies for years had basically been seen as movies that just didn't work at movie theaters. These video game adaptations really struggled to take off. But the first Sonic kind of redefined what success can mean for these movies. What are your expectations in something like Sonic 2? I think a lot of that audience will come back, especially because a lot of kids love that first movie. And, you know, we can also look at Detective Pikachu, which opened just shortly, maybe the year before Sonic. Those two movies really broke that video game adaptation trend. Uh, But Sonic is the one getting a sequel first. And I think a lot of that's because it's a little more playful. And this is also a, a, you know, a franchise that I think could really bring back more of those families that haven't been back to theaters, especially by the time this opens in the spring. Paramount's strategy will be an interesting one to watch. Obviously, they have put a, a number of movies onto Paramount Plus, uh, some on the same day as their release. I would be a little surprised if they did that with Sonic 2, assuming things regarding the pandemic are improved or continue to improve over the next five months. But yeah, I think this is certainly a, a springtime player, especially with how it's positioned around spring break time. Guys, thank you very much uh, once again for joining here. Next up, Russ, Sean, we actually have an interview with the head of the Global Cinema Advertising Association, Cheryl Wonell, who oversees this massive sector for movie theaters in terms of bringing in additional revenue apart from concession sales and ticket sales. A very important lifeline economically for movie theaters. Some great perspectives on how that association survived the pandemic and how cinema advertising is poised to continue its comeback into 2022. Now, with any further ado, let's go to this interview with Cheryl Winnell. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. Talking all things about cinema advertising, we know it is a lifeline for exhibitors. It has been, uh, especially as we come out of the pandemic, but it's also been a bumpy road for recovery for a lot of the companies that you represent as a global trade association. So from your perspective at the Cinema Advertising Association, when did this recovery begin in earnest? Uh, Hi, Daniel. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, Well, I guess... It's a difficult kind of answer to come up with because initially when this all started in March 2020, you know, most of the industry thought it was going to be, we're going to be closed for eight weeks and, you know, like May, June, July last year. And that really that the recovery was going to be kind of pretty much after that. But then, of course, it comes in waves, as you know, and, you know, as one part of the world closed, another opened, and then ones had capacity restrictions and other ones were lifted and then, of course, different variants happened. So really, I think we've started to really properly recover in quarter four of 2021. Initially, I think Australia kind of led the way um, in the recovery process and in the advertising market as well. China, of course, being the first uh, country to be hit by the pandemic, also started to recover very well. Japan as well, Denmark. Places where they could be propped up by local content being produced, like China has its own movie market, as does Japan, etc. So they had some very early successes. But then, of course, new variants arrived and those markets started to close again. And, you know, it sort of started having a big roller coaster effect around the world and extremely hard to manage. I guess now you look, um, I mean, probably Denmark is kind of leading the world at the moment. Uh, they've been open now for about six months. 
Um, their capacity levels are good. So they've got a local content market as well and they're doing very well. The UK's recovered well, Australia's recovered well, even though we've just been in a four-month lockdown, which kind of turned Australia upside down. But again, we've come out of it strong because we've got a very good movie slate at the moment, as you know. Now that we have cinemas reopened, audiences are slowly trickling back in, but of course it takes a little bit longer for advertisers to look at the cinema experience and be convinced that cinemas have that power that they've always had to appeal to those mass audiences. From a global perspective, where does cinema advertising find itself today as we're entering 2022? Well, as I said, I think quarter four has been great because we've got a great movie slate. And I think uh, we're lucky we're a very old medium, like we've been around a long time, even though we're modernised today digitally. So I think we have a lot of trust and people have used cinema for a long time. They know it has an incredibly high recall, has a very big, well, we're really on the attention channel. It's the holy grail of cinema. So in some senses, you know, what happens in the movie, what happens in Hollywood or what happens in movie making is a complete reflection in our industry. I think we've also worked very, very hard to communicate with our brands and our agencies. We didn't just sit back for the last 18 months and do nothing. We worked very hard to make sure we were still visible, even though the cinemas in a lot of the countries around the world have been either closed part or closed a lot of that time, etc. So I think we're in a good position. I think that we are feeling positive. I mean, if you look at the UK, I mean, revenue and audiences um, in lots of parts of Europe, but especially in the UK and now pretty much line ball the 2019 same period. Denmark are beating those figures in audiences and uh, and revenue. So I think we are in a good position now and we're going to be heading into 2022 very comfortable and very positive. Oh, of course, you mentioned those 18 months where everybody in the industry had to go back to the drawing board and innovate a little bit. Uh, here in the United States, you had exhibitors reopening and selling concessions to go really out of outside of their cinemas uh, to cars as they were getting through. We've seen pop-up drive-ins, so many concepts of innovating with the restrictions. From uh, the Cinema Advertising uh, Association's perspective, what were some of those stories of resiliency and innovation from your members around the world? What things that really I thought was wonderful during the period was some of the collaboration between our members. Now, a lot of these members are in competition with each other in very similar markets, um, they sell, you know, cross markets. And we built a thing called a global task force, which I'll talk about a little bit later, which was a set of prominent companies around the world in senior jobs. And they helped each other. They were so transparent with their information, with their research, their marketing. We built a wonderful forum, SOA, that they could all uh, log into and get this rich information from. And I think that type of collaboration has really been great for the cinema medium because it was like we were in it together. We're not alone. We've always had a very successful trade body. We've been around 68 years. But I think it's become even more successful and more collaborative and more united than ever. And that's one of the good things that's happened out of COVID. As I say, every cloud has a silver lining. And when you talk about the trade body and SAWAS efforts to rally the industry together, get a lot of these competitors, and it's a really fiercely uh, competitive sector of this industry, getting them together, getting them to work together. Could you talk about some of those efforts that SAWA as a Global Cinema Advertising Association made in helping drive back cinema advertising now that theaters are open? Initially, when this all happened, um, there were two schools of thought. One was we stopped our fee membership, we wound SAWA back, we went into a dormant environment for as long as it needed. Who knew it was going to be eight weeks or who knew it was going to be 18 months? 
and we just kind of sat back and just, you know, waited out the period. Or we stepped up and became more aggressive, more communicative, more, you know, involved with our members and tried to be almost like a news network of great communication and, and great support. We took the second option, we took the latter option and decided to step up our game. And it's been very successful for SAWA because we are now completely stable financially. We are back on track as a trade body, even though a lot of trade bodies probably couldn't say that into today's market. We set up this global task force, which I mentioned a moment ago. Now, that was a great initiative and one that you look back now on and it was hard. It was very time consuming. It was difficult because we had 10 prominent companies in the cinema advertising space around the world that came together every Monday night on Zoom and sometimes it was midnight in some countries. We met some great people. Uh, we built great relationships, companies from, you know, whether you're in America or companies in South Africa or in London, they became closer and they worked together. And we worked out five of the challenges that we needed to work on. We built webinars around them, but we solved the issues by research and hard work and we allocated experts in the cinema advertising market. So, for example, on marketing, companies that were really good at marketing. And we put all that information into a new forum we built in sawa.com for members only. And they could go in and they could find research from all around the world that had been done during COVID, ones that were done big research projects that were done before COVID, and they could then use that research, adapt it to their local market, you know, put it in their own language, adapt the culture that was needed, changes that were needed, etc. And that was a huge collaboration, but a transparency that was so great that members were prepared to really help each other. One of the other things we developed was a thing called Hello Big Screen, which is we went to uh, six of the advertising legends in the world and we asked them to do an endorsement on video, a 60-second piece to camera. From that, our South African Sturkinical uh, member built a heap of social media campaigns, which we're in the last week of now. We did a six-week campaign. And we had some of the most famous people like Sir John Hegarty, Mark Tutsil, Marcello Serpa, the United Nations, so many people do so many wonderful endorsements. But these are people who make cinema ads. These are people that understand the power the captivity, the attendance that cinema advertising gets on the big screen. And so they were happy to do it. They did it for free. And then the UN did a lot of the work putting it together. And then we sent it out. And then together all our members worked together to uh, have this go viral. And it's been amazing. It's so interesting to hear, especially from the perspective of cinema advertising, because you're in constant contact, not only with exhibitors, but also with advertisers, with brands that are looking to get back into the movie theater screens when they know those audiences are back. That's why when you mention all of the research that you've made available for your members, looking at a country per country basis on what the recovery looks like, I think you guys are best informed as to what we can expect or, or where we are as a global industry. Having said that, we understood coming into 2021, it was going to be a recovery year. It was going to be impossible to hit 2019 levels in a year where it was marked by vaccine availability around the world. Now, as we enter 2022, the big question mark, I think, in a lot of minds is, what's the time frame for recovery? Do you expect us to hit those 2019 admission levels in several countries? Or is there a date or a milepost that you're looking ahead to to sort of gauge where we are in getting back to at least 2019 levels? Many, many, many countries are already, Daniel, at 2019 levels. Many countries in Europe, the UK, Australia are up there, you know, China's up there, 
Denmark is up there. There's so many countries are already there at 2019 levels in both audience and now in revenue. So we kind of set ready. Of course, the new variant Omicron, who knows what that's going to do and what effect that's going to have on everybody. And that's pretty scary. If you'd asked me last week, I had a different answer this week. <laughs> but that's pretty much what we've been living the last 18 months in our lives. Our lives have all changed. I think it's important to be positive and to always remember that, you know, there's nothing like going to the big screen, there's nothing like the viewability of cinema. There's no doubt that streaming had a massive effect on the cinema industry when the pandemic first hit because, Daniel, the cinemas were closed. So where were they supposed to run the movies? There was nowhere else to run it except streaming. But if you've noticed, like you look at James Bond, for example, they held that off for 18 months. Why did they hold it off for 18 months? And we did a lot of research on streaming in our global task force to get some proper solutions in the market and not imagine with fake news of things that were actually happening. James Bond was held back for 18 months and the real reason it was held back was because it wasn't going to make the money to cover the film if they ran it on streaming. They needed to have it theatrically released. And you look at all the big films at the moment, whether it's Spider-Man, whether it's James Bond, whether it's Dune, whether it's The Eternals, all these films need theatrical release. And that will wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again to Cheryl 1L for joining us. And uh, so happy, Daniel and Sean, to talk to you guys again. This was a lot of fun. The Box Office Podcast is produced by recordeditpodcast.com and the Box Office Company. Thank you all for listening, and please join us again next week. <laughs>